All right. Well, you see at the top of your hand out there, it says armed and dangerous, equipped to do battle for God. And you may be thinking armed and dangerous. And something may come to your mind. Maybe this came to your mind. Anthrax, if you were uh, in the 80s, uh, Anthrax was a heavy metal band. They had a, a record called Armed and Dangerous. Perhaps you didn't think of Anthrax. How about this? John Candy and uh, Meg Ryan, they did a movie called Armed and Dangerous in 1986. Maybe you didn't think of that either. How about this? There was a video game, effectually known in 2003 as A&D, called Armed and Dangerous. Or perhaps you've heard this. Or there, you've seen there's, there's prayer uh, websites out there called armedforprayer.org. Or you've heard this on the news. That's a Redmond PD pursuit in pretty much downtown Bellevue. 143 Northeast and Northeast Day. So white van suspects are considered armed and dangerous. Suspects are considered armed and dangerous. It's a cliche. It means someone who has a lethal weapon and is not afraid to use it. And so no, none of those Im- images really pick up what I'm trying to communicate. But one of them, that last one does, that we, we should have biblical weapons And we shouldn't be afraid to use them. Did you know that each and every person in here who knows the Lord Jesus Christ has a biblical weapon, yea, even two, and we should use them. And we will be dangerous for Jesus against the schemes of the devil. And so I want to walk through Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, and just show you what these weapons are. But first I want to give you a a caveat. Uh, When we start talking about spiritual warfare, there are two extremes that people go to. On one end, there are those who are oblivious, they're unaware, and they just don't even think about spiritual warfare. On the other end, there are those who are obsessed with it. They're over-aware. If this side, everything is answered with science, it's a naturalistic worldview. This side is answered that there's spirits everywhere and they're in everything. There's spirit in the chair, and we can get obsessed with it. And it's a hyper-charismatic worldview. But the Bible is more serious for those who are oblivious And it's more sound for those who are obsessed. And so we want to look at Ephesians 6. But first I want to set the context. So if you flip back a few pages and just look at Ephesians as a whole, uh, we're going to see the reality of the world in which we live, the necessity of bearing the armor, and the simplicity of the use of those weapons. And Ephesians breaks down nicely. If you were to look at an outline of Ephesians, it breaks nicely into three word pictures. And you can see it up there on the overhead. There's this idea of spiritual sight that you can see. Um, Paul prays in Ephesians 1.15, I pray that the eyes of their heart may be opened, that they may see the riches of God's glory. And then in four one, we move on to a worthy walk. I, the prisoner of Paul, Jesus encourage you to walk in a manner worthy. And he just walks through, walk in unity, walk in purity, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. And he uses that word over and over again. You see it in in 4.1. Walk in a manner worthy. If your Bible doesn't have a word walk, you might want to put it there where it says live because that's the key word in the section 4.1 through 6.9. And then finally at the end, it's we move from seeing who God is to walking in obedience to him to standing strong against the attacks of the enemy. And the literature Paul uses when we get to Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 is that of a general getting ready, and the army's behind him. They're getting ready to go out into battle. And if you've seen any movie that has a great battle scene or any movie that has a crucial game coming up, 
any movie that you can think of, Hoosiers, The Miracle, Marshall, Gladiator, Braveheart, Band of Brothers, there's always this epic speech. And that's the kind of language that Paul is using here in Ephesians 6. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see the reality of the world in which we live, the necessity of bearing the armor of God, and the simplicity of the weapons that we've been given. And so first you see this, uh, that I want us to know that we live in a world that is glorious. Amen? I mean, we, especially for those of us who live here or other parts of the, the United States, that it's just beautiful. The heavens declare the glory of God. But we also live in a world that is dangerous. Dangerous. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It is a glorious world in which we live, and it's a dangerous world in which we live. And so these verses help us to understand how to live like that. And it says, finally, or or a better way to say that is for the remaining time, since Christmas and until Jesus Christ's second coming, we have to understand that life is a combat sport. And many believers have kind of fallen asleep, and if that's you, let this sermon kind of serve as an alarm clock. Not one of those nagging alarm clocks, right, that just beep and you can never turn them off, but one that it just wakes you up and it gives you that strength for the next day. And it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's literally be strengthened in the Lord. It is an imperative. It's called us to do something, but it's in the passive. It's something that's done to us. And Paul goes on to explain, how can we be strong in the Lord? Well, he says right here in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. It's the idea, Paul uses it 13 times in his letters, three times in this section, of putting something on to protect you. It is like when you live in Eagle and you have a Bible study at, say, 6.30 in the morning, you put on your coat. As warm as it is in your house, you always put on your coat when you leave or you will get cold. And if you forget your coat, you understand that, God, that you put on the coat, and so it's something that you actively do. You put it on. And so here he says, put on the whole arm of God that you may be able to stand. If your adversary, the devil, prowls around seeking to devour you, you can stand against him. Not necessarily attack him, but you can stand into defensive position. Stand against, and look what it says there, the schemes of the devil the schemes of the devil. Now, if you're just thinking the immediate context, Paul has said, walk in unity, walk in purity, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. And so it's the idea here that the schemes of the devil, the schemes, they're not really known. They're subtle. They they are deceptive. And so Satan will try to not have us have unity, but disharmony. Satan will not want us to be pure but unholy. Satan will not want us to love one another. He'll want us to hate each other. Satan will not want us to live in the light, but he wants us to live in the dark. And Satan would not want us to live wise life but foolish lives. You could say his schemes are theological and it started in the garden. Garden. Did God really say? And he moved there to the intellectual. Well, he knows you will be like him. And then to the physical, and Eve saw that the tree was good for food, and then the emotional, it was a delight to the eyes. 
And so Satan moves through all of those things. Subtly, it's deceptive. But Paul says, put on this armor and you, you can stand against those deceptive schemes. And he says, for we do not wrestle. That's our, that's our uh, struggle there is wrestle. And it's meant to be hand-to-hand combat. So the battle is not out there somewhere. It's not in Afghanistan. It's not over in the Middle East. It's right here. It's up close and personal. And so he says, take up the whole armor of God for our battle. We do not wrestle. It's hand-to-hand combat against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That our battles in life, personally, interpersonally, maritally, all the things that go on paternally, those battles are not flesh and blood. If I have an issue with, with Jim, we, we are humans and there is an issue there, but that, that, there's a battle going on that's not flesh and blood. There's a spiritual war going on, and if the Lord were to pull back the curtain just a little bit and for us to see what truly is taking place, that, that if we were to really think through, it's not about who's going to win the Iowa caucus on Tuesday and it's a battle of Republicans versus Democrats. Because behind all that, there is a spiritual battle going on. And if he were to peel back the curtain, we would drop on our faces and pray. More on that in just a minute. And so our struggle, our hand-to-hand combat is not against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle. And so there, there's the reality in which the world in which we live. We can't just write it off with, oh, science answers everything, if not science reason. There's a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual battle going on in this valley. There's a spiritual battle going on in this country. There's a spiritual battle going on in the world. Amen? It's what we were told in Sunday school. It is a dark place, but in that dark place, the light of the gospel shines bright. And so there's a necessity that follows that, that we bear some armor against the attack of the enemies. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done so, to stand firm. So you go from seeing the glories of the gospel to walking in obedience to a firm, strong stance. And so we're not to attack, but we're to be on the defense. We're to resist the devil, firm in our faith, and draw close to God. And we're to put on this gear, right? Here in a couple months, let's see, it's, it's January 1st. I think it is going to be around April. I will see riding by my neighborhood. It happens almost every day. I will see people in their gear. They will be on their road bikes, and they will be dressed to the hill. You can't miss them. They'll, or they may even be on a mountain bike, but they'll be in their gear. They've got a helmet on. They've got some sort of... Uh, protective pants on. They normally have a flashy shirt on. They've got their glasses on, and some of them even have their earphones on, and they're going to battle against the mountain, and they're dressed in their gear. And it's all the more important that you and I know what gear we are to put on and then put it on. It says, stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth. And I'm Actually, for the sake of time, I'm going to save walking through all the armor until we touch on Ephesians. And by the way, if you're if you're interested in this and you just need more, um, 
Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book on these 10 verses, 11 verses, 350 pages. So if you, if, you, if I don't give you enough, you can go do your homework there. Uh, there's another guy, William Gurnall, back in the uh, late 1700s, 1,200 pages on these 11 verses. 1,200 pages. Here's the title. It would not have passed any publisher today. It's called The Christian Incomplete Armor, A Treatise of Saints, War Against the Devil. And he goes on. Wherein a discovery is made of that grand enemy of God and his people in his policies, power, seat of the empire, wickedness, and chief design he hath against the saints. A magazine opened from whence the Christian is furnished with spiritual arms for battle, helped on with his armor, and taught to use his weapons together with the happy use of the whole war in the whole war by William Gurnall, M.A. of Emmanuel College, pastor of the Church of Christ in, uh, I'm going to butcher this, but Lavenham, Suffolk. 1,200 pages, 261 chapters, if you so desire. But I just want to touch on the armor and then really camp on the weapons. And so you have this, this belt of truth, this girdle of truth. More accurately, it's, it's the under armor, not to, no pun intended, right? But it's the under armor that goes from the shoulders down to the thighs, and it's what everything else attached to. And so it holds up everything. It's the belt of truth. And for us, that means it is the truth of God's word. It is what upholds everything else in our life. It is both objective that we can, it's outside of us. The truth does not remain in us. It's not one truth for Jim, another truth for me, and another one for Jason. It is the truth. It is objective and it is out there and it's for everybody, not just here in Eagle and in Colorado and America, but all the way to India. It's the same truth. And it is subjective that we're to take that objective truth of the gospel and apply it to our lives. Yet there are many today who don't believe in any objective truth nor live by the truth that we so readily have. Jesus even saying in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Not an adjective as if it approximates truth, but it is truth. And the truth is, and here's the gospel, that you and I are sinners in need of a Savior, that we were born in iniquity, that we have been disobedient, we have been unholy, we have not been unified, pure, loving, walking in the light, or wise. And we need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. And that Savior not only comes in and he rearranges the furniture of our life, but he takes up residence through the power of the Holy Spirit that we might now go to war with him, and we are victorious. In fact, the next thing he talks about is the breastplate of righteousness. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this is what covers the heart. So once saved by grace, we have the responsibility to live righteous lives. That's what Brian Kaiser talked about a couple months ago. And so how do we do battle against the wicked world in which we live? We obey. <laughs> the breastplate of righteousness, we obey. We're not the heroes. Jesus is. Next, he says, And as for shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. You could call these the Birkenstocks of the gospel, right? Breastplate, Birkenstocks. These shoes helped the Roman soldiers when they went into battle. And that's probably what Paul's doing here. He's in prison, he's locked up, and he's looking over, and there's a Roman soldier. And so as he's writing, under the power of the Holy Spirit, he's just moving. Belt of truth, 
breastplate of righteousness, and he looks down and he sees these shoes. Now, these are not minimalistic shoes like those Vibrams that are in fad today. These were big, chunky, cleated shoes so that they could grasp the ground and make advances. And so when we, are, we have hearts permeated with the gospel, ready for the gospel of peace, we not only know the gospel, but we can apply the gospel to our own lives every day. Every decision we make should be filtered through the gospel. How I handle my money, how I handle my relationships, how I view New Year's resolutions, all of those should go through the gospel filter. He moves on. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, this wasn't the little Captain America shield that you've seen before. This was a shield that went from about the shoulder to the knee, And it was a shield that was made of wood, covered in skins, and then soaked in water so that those Roman soldiers who were going, when the fiery darts came, they put it up and they become extinguished. And Satan will fire fiery darts at you. If he is not right now, he will. Trust me. James says, do not be surprised when trouble comes. He doesn't say if, he says when. And Satan will fire fiery darts. He often attacks the very armor we're trying to put on. Truth, relative. Righteousness, it's unnecessary. The gospel, it's all-inclusive. Faith, it's subjective. Salvation, all roads lead to God. He will fire fiery darts at us. The word of God, just a good piece of literature. It's irrelevant. It's outdated. Prayer, if that's what makes you feel good, go for it. And flames will be fired at us and we're to put up that shield of faith and we're not to let go. This is the biggest piece of armor in the believer's life, my opinion. This is the biggest piece of armor in the believer's life because 1 John 5, 3 says, love the Father and His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. What's burdensome is, do we really believe that doing the right thing at the right time all the time will honor God. It's, it's when we struggle with anger, lust, impatience, selfishness, we're not really believing the promises of God. We, we've believed a lie, a fiery dart has penetrated. It's gotten deep into our heart and we're saying, you know what, God's word just can't be true in this situation. And then he goes on and he says, the last piece is the helmet of salvation. Take up the helmet of salvation. And so he's already talked about the truth. He's already talked about this righteousness. He's already talked about faith. And so the idea of salvation here is is not that objective faith that's out there that we come to know in Jesus. This is that salvation that do we really believe what God says he'll do? Do we really believe Philippians 1, 6, 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it? Do we really believe that? Or are we living in fear of this? Well, I just don't know if I've truly believed or if I've truly been saved. He says, put on this last piece, this most important piece to guard your mind that yes, you can have confidence, I can have confidence because the word of God tells us and the Holy Spirit who wrote the word intercedes for us and lets us know that we are children of God. You and I, if we've truly believed in Jesus Christ, rest secure. It's the helmet of salvation. Nothing 
will separate us from the love of God. Paul says in Romans 8, we're more than conquerors, more military language. People often ask, well, won't people just live heathen lifestyles? If you're preaching that it's once saved, always saved, and once you trust in Jesus truly and you've bowed the knee, you'll never lose your salvation, won't people just live heathen lifestyles? No. God's grace compels us to holiness. Those who claim to love Jesus and live differently, it gives us reason to go, what's going on? You say one thing and you do another. Not to throw in a Tebow comment, but I will. What's beautiful about what's going on there, win or lose, and I pray for him, I really do, is he's an example of the way all of us should be. He's bold about his faith. He's unapologetic for it. He associates it with everything, win or lose, and he's unafraid to talk about Jesus. That shouldn't be unique to a Tim Tebow, to an NFL quarterback. That should be for all of us. And so we now move into these weapons. All these other things are just armor. You've got the, the shield of faith. You've got the, the shoes ready for the gospel. You've got the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. Now he moves into one, two weapons totally connected. And this is where I want to spend my time. Paul says in another letter, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh and blood, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And he says, Take up not only the helmet of salvation, but the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There is your weapon. It's the Word of God. It's your sword. And if you're from the motherland, right, you can go to Scotland or England and you see these huge swords in castles. They're taller than me and probably way more than I do. They're decorative. And people walk over there and they say, wow, this is wonderful. Historically interesting, but practically useless. That's not the sword that Paul's talking about. He's talking about that little sword that you could carry for hand-to-hand combat and could become very skilled with. And it originates, look where it says, the sword of the Spirit, the sword which originates from the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who's written every single verse of this Bible. The sword of the Spirit, and it's the only weapon mentioned in attack mode. Yet I would go on to say that many Bible-believing Christians do not know how to take up their weapon. What we do is we wave this as a banner instead of wield it as a sword. One pastor said just recently that a century ago, 12 to 13-year-old young men and women knew more Bible then than some men in their 40s today know about their Bible. Men who know Jesus, men who love Jesus. And so what I wanted to do is just give you a little apologetic for the Scriptures. The Scriptures speak for themselves, but I just wanted to give you a little apologetic. I have some handouts here. You can get them later. But it talks about all the ancient authors, and when they wrote their great treatises and the copies and the time span in between, 
And where we get our government, Plato's Republic, written in 380 B.C., the earliest copy is 900 A.D., that's 1,300 years before when he wrote it and when they have a copy of it. And there's only seven of them, seven copies in the world. Where if you have the New Testament, the closest copy now is within 25 years of its original writing. And we have 24,000 copies of these pieces of the New Testament. In fact, you could take the Bible away from us. And if we went and did good homework, we could go to all the church fathers. Fosters. I was thinking of Sheldon. We could go to all the church fathers and we could reproduce the Bible over four times. We can go and look at two Roman historians and one Jewish historian. You could look at Tacitus and Pliny of Rome and Josephus. And let me tell you 11 things. No Bible. These are just historians. This is what you'd get in their writings who are writing near the time of Jesus. He's born of a virgin, performed miracles, died under Pilate. He died under darkness. He died at Passover. He claimed to be God. He said he'd, let, he'd leave and come back. He said he was the Messiah. He said he'd be resurrected. He said he had disciples, and those disciples would worship him as God. Outside the Bible. Does our Bible talk to those issues? Born of a virgin, performing miracles, Dying under Pontius Pilate, telling us, don't, don't worry. I go to prepare a place for you, but I'll come back again. That I am the Messiah. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That I will die and be resurrected and that you are to be my disciples and that you are to worship me as God. Thomas comes up to him at the end of John, my, my, my Savior and my God. He didn't go, no, I'm not him. He said, you believe, blessed are those who do not see and believe. So if you just need some evidence, you can pick up one of these. If you need some encouragement, I just want to encourage you that there's simplicity in this use. It calls for reading it, memorizing it, 